You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Hello again. We're looking at the topic of marriage and singleness. Uh, we have looked at uh, two passages so far. Our third passage is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me, uh, let me get our little, one, our little theologian started first, and I'll say a couple things uh, about this passage. Uh, you should be turning to 1 Corinthians 7. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we can get a Bible to you. We have Bibles. You just, raise, just wave your hand. 1 Corinthians 7, really, really challenging passage. Little theologians, here's what I'd like for you guys to do. I would like for you to somehow draw one man fighting against the whole world. I know you like drawing fights. At least the little boys do. But I think that Paul, in this passage, is actually taking a system that the whole world understood that works just fine in terms of being married and being singled. And Paul is taking this whole system that everyone in the Greco-Roman world has agreed upon, and he's flipping it upside down. He's saying things about marriage and things about singleness that culture hadn't been saying at all. So one man, Paul the Apostle, uh, fighting against this ordered culture to turn it all upside down. So make a piece of art out of that. This passage uh, has a lot of challenges, and as I was making my way through the passage, there just were questions I felt had to be answered, but they're very difficult questions to answer. And uh, scholars, uh, writers of really fat commentaries, um, actually, I, I can like both of them, but those two don't agree. Isn't that terrible? You like both these people, and those people don't agree. But I just I want to ask a, a few questions as we make our way through this passage. And the questions I'll tell you even before we read the passage. What is a gift? What is restraint or self-control? And then what is devotion? What is a gift? What is restraint or self-control? And what is devotion? We're going to look uh, at a couple of different uh, sections of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. We'll begin at verse uh, 6, and then we'll skip after verse 9. I'll talk you through it. Let's, let's go to our Lord first before we even read the passage. How about that? Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. We thank you. Your word is inerrant. Your word is infallible. Your word is authoritative. Your word is filled with the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit that has protected and superintended the word over the centuries is the same spirit that makes us able to understand that word. That's astounding. Father, would the spirit work as I preach a feeble sermon this morning to your own glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, let's begin at verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion." And then skip down with me to verse 32. 
I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is the word of our Lord. Here's what I mean when I said earlier that Paul is actually taking uh, understood uh, systems of uh, thought and belief in the Greco-Roman world, that is, first century uh, Judaism, and he's actually uh, turning that upside down. You know, what, what the New Testament says to the first century world is this, first regarding marriage. The Bible says to the first century world about marriage is that husbands don't actually own their wives. That's what the Bible says, that husbands don't own their wives. And that would have been something that would uh, have been uh, uh, an ethic of first century uh, Judaism. He says they cannot divorce them as they please, so says Jesus. The Bible says that uh, husbands do not have the right to commit adultery. They don't have the right to commit adultery. In Greco-Roman culture, it was assumed that a husband would marry for one reason, but he'd have many mistresses for other reasons. The Bible says that that is wicked. And so husbands don't have the right to commit adultery. The Bible says that husbands must deal with their wives in a gentle fashion. The Bible says to wives that wives must not manipulate their husbands, using their husbands for their own glory. That wives must submit to their husbands as they are submitting to their God. The Bible says that wives mustn't neglect dutiful management of the home, care for the home, Proverbs 31. And this turns upside down the notions of what it meant to be a married man in the Greco-Roman world. But uh, also, now we may hear that and go, yes, indeed, that is true. But uh, so too does Paul overturn notions of singleness in the first century world. Uh, Single people, according to the Bible, are not worthless. They're not mere workers until they marry and reproduce. Single people in the Bible are actually uh, important. The Bible says that single people are not to be socially pressured to marry, as uh, Caesar Augustus legally did. He fined single people for not getting married after two years. The Bible doesn't put that pressure on a single person. Single people, according to the Bible, are not to be slaves to passion cavorting about the world, loving their singleness in such a way that they can live as sexual deviants with other people. They can do this because they're single. The Bible says that that's wicked. The Bible also protects single people so that single people aren't simply individuals that can be used by someone else. You're single, therefore I can take sexual advantage over you. The Bible also says that single people do not have permission to be utterly self-seeking. They can't remain single simply for the purpose 
of loving themselves. And the Bible says that single people ought not be ignored to die in loneliness, as widows often were in the first century world. And I think that this is the first step to understanding what Paul's after in 1 Corinthians 7. That just as the Bible overturns notions of marriage, so too does the Bible overturn notions of singleness in the first century world. In the Bible, marriage and singleness are actually elevated to their intended purpose before God. And that's why I think that in this passage, we learn that whether married or single, God is worthy of our complete devotion. Whether we're married or whether we're single, God is worthy of our complete devotion. Now, as we look at this passage, just a a lot of thorny issues kind of stare us in the face. And I have to say that this is one of those passages that really uh, made me uh, go back to my Greek and restudy some of the ways in which particularly Greek verbs work. Uh, I just I felt like I needed to go right back to seminary. Uh, just difficult, uh, difficult passages here. Uh, the first question, remember there's three questions, gift, um, I forgot the second one, self-control or uh, restraint, and then the third one is devotion. Uh, what is a gift? If your Bibles are open, you can look at 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1 and just kind of get a, get a sense of, of how the structure is working in, in this chapter. Verse 1 is all about a single man. Uh, let me turn to it myself here. Uh, verse 1, uh, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So Paul's clearly addressing um, a single man who uh, wants to know um, how freely they can be with regard to their sexual uh, activities. And so verse 1 is a single man, but look what he does in verse 2. Verses 2 through 5, there's a switch. Verse 2 begins, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. You see, he goes from one singleness, and then he begins to talk from verses 2 to 5 about not one man, but one man and one woman in a married relationship. And then he goes all the way down to verse 6, which is our verse, and he opens verse 6 speaking specifically to to the single man again. And he says in verse 6, now as a concession, as a concession, that's what the ESV says, that word only shows up here in the Greek New Testament. And uh, what, he's, what he means by that, I, I love this translation that, I, that uh, I read in the lexicon. It means that Paul is, is saying now is a compromise or meeting you halfway. He says, as a concession, not as a command, I say this. And then verse 7, he says, I wish that all were as myself, uh, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. Real quickly before we dive into this, I want you to just notice that what Paul is saying with verses 6 and 7 is he's saying, look, it's okay to get married. You hear what he's saying? He's saying to the single person, it's okay if you get married. He is not offering a command, never get married. He says to the single person, it's okay. You can get married. You can You can get married. Uh, he's actually removing this, uh, this cultural notion that my singleness is the most precious thing about my life. If I can be wealthy and single, that's the goal. I can live as freely as I want. 
And Paul's saying, look, it's actually, it's okay. You can, you can get married. You don't have to be afraid of commitment. You don't have to be afraid of bringing children into this world. You can get married. And then he's saying to the married person, he's saying, or, or, or he's uh, saying to, yes, the married person, he's saying, you know, it's actually okay that you're not single. It's okay that you're not single. Some married people uh, wish that they could be single, filled with a bitter, bitterness to, towards their spouse. They actually want to be single. And Paul is saying, look, it's okay that you're not single. You don't have to go backwards in time to your single life to reclaim something that you lost. You do not have to divorce your spouse so that you can taste that former glory. It's no glory. It's, it's okay that you're single. I think what Paul is doing here is he's actually uh, simmering us down. He's taking an, an, uh, an argument and he's actually removing the thrust from that argument. That's why I think the question that we need to ask is this. What is a gift? What does he mean when he says that each has his own gift from God? I can tell you how we tend to read that. As we read that is a gift is something that's just an, it's an easily obtained object of my desire. That's what a gift is. A gift is something that I just, it just makes me happy. It's, a, it's the gift that I always wanted. It's given to me. It's free. And it's exactly what makes the, the, uh, the cockles of my heart sing. But that's not what Paul's saying here. That's not what he's saying is he saying there's such a thing as a gift of singleness? It's exactly what you always hoped for for Christmas. You open it up and there it is. It will never make you unhappy. Only leads to your happiness. Is that what marriage is? I'm sorry, is that what singleness is? But you could also ask, is there such a thing as a gift of marriedness? There's a gift of singleness and there is a gift of marriedness. Would a married person say that their marriage is always a gift? They might. If they were honest, they wouldn't. If they were honest, they would say sometimes it's an awful lot of work. And sometimes the affection isn't there. And sometimes I need to, I need to pray, pray, pray that God would give me the proper warmth and affection for my wife that I ought to have for her. You see, if we say that there is a gift of singleness, we're saying singleness should be just a delight and easy and you shouldn't worry about it at all. And the same thing for marriage. It's all easy, isn't it? It's not all easy. It's not all easy. When Paul uses the word gift here, he's not talking about the desire of your heart, exactly what you always wanted. He's talking about God's gracious care in every circumstance. God's gracious care in Every circumstance, if you are a single and if you are a Christian, God's gift is his care for you in your singleness. If you are married and if you are a Christian, God's gift is his care for you in your state of marriage. That's what gift means. God with you regardless of your circumstances. Singleness, marriage, poverty, wealth. God is always with you. Let me prove this by looking at another singleness passage. That's in Matthew 19, 11, and 12. I'd like for you to turn to Matthew 19, if you would, please. 
The argument that I'm making is that we should never think that singleness is simply just a gift and I'm supposed to like it. I should never desire anything else. Singleness is a gift because God is with you. Married life is a gift because God is with you. But look at Matthew 19, verses 11 through 12. Very strange passage. In preparing this sermon, I only looked at difficult passages. It's amazing. Look what Paul or what Jesus is saying. The topic on the lips of everyone is uh, divorce. On what you know, how can I how can I get away from this woman? That's that's really the basis of the question. How can I get away from this woman? And Jesus says to them, He says, divorce is actually meant for those whose hearts are hard. For those whose hearts are hard, that's that's who uh, the uh, certificate of divorce Moses applies for in Deuteronomy 24. That certificate of divorce is there because just people are hard-hearted. And then the disciples come to him afterwards and they say, well, hold on, if there's no divorce, it's just better not to marry. I mean, if you're saying, Jesus, that there should not be any divorce, divorce is evidence of hardness of heart, then it's just better not to marry. And this is Jesus' response in Matthew 19, 11, and 12. And what Jesus says is he says that there's, there are three kinds of eunuchs. Eunuchs in the ancient world would have been readily understood as individuals who had had um, a, the, the, some physical aspect of their body tortured. Can I just say it like that? And it was for a purpose. And what Jesus says, he says there's some eunuchs who are eunuchs from birth. That's difficult. What is, who's a eunuch from birth? It would be an individual who for some physical or psychological incapacity, maybe it's impotence, they remain single their whole lives. They're eunuchs from birth. That's difficult. I'm not sure how to understand eunuchs from birth. The easier one is the second one, eunuchs made by men. This was commonly how eunuchs became eunuchs. They would be made eunuchs by others so that they might then work in the royal household and, and care for the royal, uh, the royal possessions, but they would be made eunuchs so that they wouldn't uh, have this fearsome desire to steal and run away with all the possessions. Uh, they would be a bit more docile. And so some eunuchs were eunuchs made by men. And then the third one is interesting. Eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Hmm... Christopher Ashe, in his book on marriage, says that uh, in Matthew 19, it's the third one that's the most important, that, that Jesus is building up to this notion that there is such a thing as a eunuch who makes himself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. And I think, this is what Christopher Ashe says, he says, look, there is such a thing as a single person who actually is terribly in pain being, a single, but they, being single, but they feel as though they need to be for the sake of the kingdom. I think Paul's probably an example of that, don't you? I think Paul's probably an example. Ash goes on to say that this person is a very rare person, but we have to note that the Bible's view of singleness is that singleness accompanies some kind of pain, difficulty. In fact, in the ancient world, singleness would be very difficult because you would be giving up an heir. You're giving up an heir. You haven't anyone to pass your estate to because you've remained single. 
From a biblical perspective, we could understand that singleness uh, requires a little bit of pain because we looked at Genesis 1 and 2 where we found that marriage actually is the provision of a helper that with this helper you might serve God's glory. You would, you would do God's work guarding and keeping His garden, His kingdom with someone else as a helper and a single person doesn't have exactly that kind of person. And I'm taking you to Matthew 19 because I want you to understand that the Bible doesn't say uh, at face value that singleness is something that's just easy. It's just easy. It's a gift. You ought to just love it. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God is with you in your singleness and He comforts you in your singleness. I want you to hear a quote from a girl by the name of Paige Benton. She wrote uh, an article called Singled Out for Good. You, You really should look it up. Singled Out for Good. And here's what she says, talking about singleness. Paige says, I long to be married. My younger sister got married two months ago. She now has an adoring husband, a beautiful home, a whirlpool bathtub, and all new corningware. Is God being any less good to me than he is to her? Do you hear that question? She's suffering as a single person. She says, the answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of His children. Paige goes on, she says, I'm not single because I'm too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I'm too spiritually mature to possibly need a husband. I'm single because God is so abundantly good to me, because this is His best for me. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. That is what 1 Corinthians 7, 9, or 7, 6 is about. The gift of singleness is a reminder that even in that singleness, God is with you. That you're not missing something, and if you get that something, then God will be with you in a more powerful way. This is why the world of Paul's day was turned upside down by this. It's not a deprivation that needs to be rectified. Those of you who are married, some of you think that it is your goal to find spouses for single people in the church. And there's no way Paul would agree with that. There's no way. What is a gift? It's God's perfect presence with you in your married state and in your single state. What is restraint? Look at verses 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, To the married and the widows. How interesting. He brings widow, to the unmarried and the widows. He brings widows in with the unmarried. He says, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is a guy verse, isn't it? This is the guy verse. This is the verse that men will use for justification of marriage. Uh, Clearly, I want this woman with such passionate sexuality that I have to marry her. That's not what Paul's saying. Let me tell you what I mean by this. The word that Paul uses for exercise self-control to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, it's one word in the Greek, and it's tremendously rare. 
The word actually uh, uh, refers to, um, it's an athletic reference to exercising self-control for the sake of doing something great. Okay, it's, it's, it's controlling not just your, uh, your sexual appetite. It, it's controlling everything about you for the purpose of something that's greater. Paul uses this word the only other time in 1 Corinthians 9.25 when he says that every athlete exercises self-control in all things. It's not a sex word. In all things. But this is very interesting. This word shows up in the Greek translation of the Old Testament Bible from Genesis 43. And in Genesis 43, uh, Joseph is uh, seeing Benjamin for the first time. And Joseph is looking out at his brothers and he's giving uh, uh, food to them. He said, I want you to bring Benjamin. They bring Benjamin and Joseph loses control of his faculties. He's about to cry and he goes into a private room to get a grip on himself. To get a grip on his emotions. And that by getting a grip on his emotions, then he can come back out, kind of not have any tears in his eyes, and he'll be just fine. That word for getting a grip on your emotions is exactly this word for self-control. It's not a word that has to do with the bedroom. It's a word that has to do with, with all, of your, all of your emotions, everything, everything about you. And for that reason, when we come to this word that has to do with burning with passion, uh, purao, this word is used six times in the New Testament and never refers to anything sexual. Never. Not once. So when Paul says, for it is better to marry than to burn, with passion, by the way, is not in any manuscript. It is, it is better to marry than to burn. I don't think Paul is talking about burning with lust. I don't think it's lust. In fact, the, uh, one of the other occasions that we see this word for burn, 2 Corinthians eleven nine, Paul's talking about anger. Don't burn with anger. The word is uh, indignation. And so when he says burn here, I don't think it has anything to do with lust. And yet that's why this passage ends up being a guy passage. I, if I marry this person, the lust will go away. And it won't. It won't. The Bible never says that marriage is a tool to kill your lusting. It doesn't go away. I remember sitting in a seminary class where there were married students and single students were taking a class, uh, I think it was uh, uh, spiritual leadership, and uh, the uh, professor was talking about lust and how damaging it can be to a pastor's ministry. And a single man uh, rose his hand and he says, look, I don't get it. He says, shouldn't you only be speaking to single people here? Because mar- I mean, these guys are married, right? So if they're married, that's what's like, like lust doesn't have any, any bearing on a married person. That was his point. All the married people in the class squirmed. All of them squirmed. You don't get married simply as a means of making lust go away. Nowhere does Scripture tell that. And also, nowhere in Scripture is lust a rationale for marriage. I love her because I'm lusting for her. Nowhere in Scripture do we read that. When Paul then says, it is better to marry than to burn, what does he mean? Here's what I think he means. In their commentary on 1 Corinthians, Roy Roy Chiampa and Brian Rosner say this. They say that what Paul is doing is he is uh, countering a prevailing culture. First century Stoics said that marriage is not romantic. Marriage is just there to produce heirs. Therefore, marriage can be arranged. 
And what these writers, uh, these commentarians are saying is they're saying when Paul says that it is better to marry than to burn, he's saying that it is appropriate to marry for attraction, to be attracted to the person you are marrying. He's saying that, look, if you are filled with attraction for this person, it is better to marry than to burn. Nothing to do with sex. There should be attraction in marriage. This is why Paul is countering the Stoics who would say attraction is unnecessary. It's all political and it can all be arranged. And Paul says, wait a minute. There's attraction between a single person and another single person at times. And at times that attraction turns to a proposal and to marriage. Now the question you should have for me, which I don't have an answer for, is... That's fine, Pastor. What then qualifies for an appropriate burning attraction? What qualifies for that? And look, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cop out on that answer. Um, I just say a few things. First of all, you, you never have comprehensive attraction for, a, for an unbeliever. Ever. That never qualifies as attraction. You are forbidden as a believer from marrying someone who is not a believer. So your attraction for an unbeliever is a perversion of some sort. We just maybe need to get to the root of what it is. Attraction also ought to be for the fruit of a person's character. Jonathan Edwards says that true virtue is actually beautiful. That is the fruit that grows out of a Christian's life. Loving kindness, tenderness, joy, praise, thanksgiving. Uh, this fruit is actually, it's actually aesthetically beautiful. And your attractiveness should have something to do with the fruit of the Christian that you are looking at. What is that attractiveness? C.S. Lewis talks about a secret thread between friends. And I've heard guys reference this secret thread, this uh, desire for lifelong friendship as being a part of that attractiveness in which you might burn in and so become an indication that you should marry this Christian. But here's my cop out. You need to look at a portion of Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, where he, he dives into what exactly this comprehensive attraction looks like. And so there, there's the cop out. It's, it's not looks, it's not money, it's not career, but there is such a thing as a Christian attraction between two single people that Paul says you ought not burn in, you ought to get married. So I would refer you to uh, Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage, where he uh, gives a bulleted list of some of these uh, scriptural uh, comprehensive attractions. What is this restraint, this restraint has to do with that romantic attraction between two Christians. What is devotion? Skip down now to verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. I want you to be free from anxieties. And he's saying there, I want you to be uh, freed up. It's almost as if he's saying, I want you to be uh, single. I want you to be free from anxieties. Every other time in this passage when you see the word anxiety, it is different than that word in 32a. Now, let me read to you this passage after I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious. That's a different word than we've seen for anxiety. It would be better to understand this word as concern. The unmarried man is rightly concerned. 
You know, when Paul boasts about Timothy to the Philippians, he says, look, I have never met anyone like Timothy who's genuinely concerned for your welfare, genuinely anxious for your welfare. It's a good anxiety beginning at verse 32b. So let me read the passage for you in this light. The unmarried man is rightly concerned about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is rightly concerned about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided or rather distributed. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is rightly concerned about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is rightly concerned about worldly things, how to please her husband. That's the better way to read this passage. The anxiety there is actually a good anxiety. It's a proper concern. A single man and a married man ought to be concerned about these things. single woman and a married woman ought to be concerned about these things. And I think what Paul is saying is he's saying that married people distribute their concerns between God and their spouse and the church. Married people distribute their concerns between their spouse and also their church family and God. But married, unmarried people are also distributing their concerns. How so? Well, Paul says throughout 1 Corinthians, he says that all of us are to be mindful of the lives of our brothers and sisters in the church. So it means an unmarried person will distribute their concern between God and their church family. Everyone is distributing their concern, their love, their devotion to God. It's all being distributed in a certain way. Married people and single people both do this. Let me ask you this. Are you distributing your concern between love for God and love for neighbor? When you're loving your neighbor, are you taking some of the devotion from God? And when you're loving God, are you taking some of the devotion away from love for neighbor? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Instead, your love for God actually fills you with compassion for your neighbor. Your love for God fills you with compassion for your spouse and for the church. Your love for God as a single person fills you with compassion for the church. This is always the case. And what, what Paul is saying to us is he's saying that whether married or single, God is worthy of our complete devotion. It just ends up being distributed in a slightly different way. But it's still complete devotion to God. Single person. If you are not devoted to God, you will never understand how to live as a single person. Husbands and wives, if you are not completely devoted to God, you will never know how to live life as a husband or as a wife. The devotion is always to God, whether you are married or whether you're single. Let me tell you what I think this means, and we'll, we'll finish up here. Marriage and singleness, out of the gospel of Jesus Christ, both become occasions for devotion to God. That Jesus crushes certain social stigmas so that in His gospel, marriage and singleness both become occasions for devotion to God. Three examples, and I'll pray. The gospel tells me that I don't have to measure myself based on my works. I'm loved through grace. Everyone here who's a Christian ought to understand that. The gospel tells me that I don't have to measure myself based on my works. Despite my sinfulness and my filth, I am loved by God. I have all of His affection. But let me say two more things. The gospel tells the single person that they don't have to be married to be worthwhile. 
The gospel tells a single person that finding a spouse is not their end-all goal, that they're already married. Christian attraction may come. It may even be rebuffed. It may be painful. But your true spouse in the gospel of Jesus will never leave you. That's what the gospel says to the single person. The gospel tells me as a married person that my marriage will never in any way devotion uh, demote God's love for me. The gospel tells me that neither marriage nor singleness limits in any way His devotion for me nor my devotion to Him. Husbands and wives, if I can deter just a little bit and tell you, the most important thing that you do, husband, the most important thing that you do, wife, is grow in devotion to your Heavenly Father. That's the most important thing about your marriage. The most important thing about your marriage is not providing, uh, for your, uh, providing uh, money for your kids. It's not paying college tuition. It's not making your wife happy. It's not placing all of your hope in your children. The most important thing for you, husband, and you, wife, is your devotion to God. And it's out of that devotion to God that those other things are tended to. These three things. The gospel tells me I don't have to measure myself based on any works. I'm loved through grace. The gospel tells the single person that they don't have to be married to be, to be worthwhile and that finding a spouse does not need to be the end-all goal of their life. And the gospel tells me that neither marriage nor singleness will limit in any way my devotion to God. Well, let's uh, pray in closing and install Mr. Sojing. Our Father, we thank you for Speaking to us in your word, these are difficult passages where I've butchered it. Your spirit will cover that up. We pray, Father, that you would draw us deeper into your word, that we would understand how it is that the gospel can reach very diverse people and very diverse statuses, single people and married people. We're thankful for the gospel that reaches us wherever we are. In Jesus' name, amen.